trail runners how's your week going are you starting to ramp your training up that's what a lot of runners are doing right now they kind of went through the lottery season and they're starting to shake their race season out and you know that kind of lights a fire underneath everybody's butts and they start to ramp up their training and i bet as a byproduct of ramping that training up maybe you're a little bit sore maybe you're not recovering quite as well maybe your joints and muscles hurt and you start to look for an ergogenic an ergogenic aid to alleviate some of those aches and pains and maybe one of the things you've been thinking about because it seems like all your other friends are doing it is you reach for a CBD product they're everywhere they're tinctures or gels they're muscle rubs or stuff that you can you know spray underneath your tongue whole different types of delivery systems and they seem to be coming more and more ubiquitous within not only the trail running space but also in the endurance space as a whole. I was recently at the running event in Austin, Texas, which is a big industry trade show. And out on the showroom floor there were 11 by my count, 11 companies that had CBD products and only nine companies, nine that had gels. And I thought to myself how in the world is the market for CBD products bigger than the market for ubiquitous, the ubiquitous and humble energy gel that we've used for decades? And so as I was walking around the floor, one of my friends said to me, and she said, hey, do any of these products actually work? And so I thought to myself, I'm going to go find that answer. And so I did what I always do. I go and I dig through a ton of research and I go and I contact the experts to get their opinion on it. And one of the people that I just happened to talk to is on the podcast today. Her name is Joanna Ziegler. And a lot of you ultra runners out there are not going to be familiar with who she is. But if you've been following the sport of triathlon for any length of time, you will surely recognize that name. Joanna was fourth at the Olympic triathlon in the Sydney Olympics. That's a heartbreaking place to be in. But after Sydney, after 2000, 2009, she won. She won the 70.3 Ironman World Championships and had a successful athletic career, not only in triathlon, but also in marathon running and in swimming, where she was a seven-time U.S. Olympic trials qualifier across the sports of swimming, triathlon, and running. Let that sink in for a little bit. But Joanna's resume doesn't really stop at her athletic pursuits. She has a PhD from John Hopkins University where she studied genetic epidemiology. And I can appreciate that, having my own genetics degree, how hard that must be. And since then, she's formed her own group called the Cannabis Research Group or Canna Research Group. And within that group, they provide research, consulting services, education, and patient services to the cannabis community and has become what amounts to a domain expert for cannabis and its use in athletes. And so I traveled up to Joanna's home in Boulder, Colorado, and we sat down for a discussion on how THC and how CBD products can be used within an athletic population as an ergogenic aid. I also brought on my good friend and fellow CTS coach, Corinne Malcolm, to play the role of, I would say, this, the skeptic or the educated skeptic 
in this whole conversation just to provide a little bit of balance. But I tell you what, what we what we really found out is, is that Joanna's approach to this is quite pragmatic and practical and based in evidence. And I think the listeners of this podcast will truly appreciate what she brings to the table and then what uh, Corinne and I can also bring to the table as coaches within the sport who are constantly having these questions kind of asked for us in terms of are CBD and or THC products useful in an athletic population? Uh, in an effort of full disclosure, I'm not sponsored by any CBD or cannabis related groups or any, any sort of those companies. So anything that I say here is, you know, my opinion and my opinion alone, I am not a, I am not a marijuana or cannabis or CBD user in any way, shape or form, except for, uh, some of the things that we actually mentioned on the podcast some of my own trials there just to alleviate some health problems that I was having at the time. But at the same time, I'm not a hater. And I realize that, uh, there are a lot of people that have found relief, uh, from these products and Joanna is one of them. And she tells us her personal story with, uh, using THC and CBD products that, uh, helped her alleviate a tremendous amount of pain that she was going through at the time and be able to, uh, live a normal life. So I'm not a hater, but I am a cautious skeptic on this role as is, I'm sure a lot of you that are listening to this podcast. So buckle up. Here we go with Joanna Ziegler and Corinne Malcolm talking about CBD, THC, and all things related cannabis. Joanna, I've been familiar with your career since you were an Olympian back in Sydney in 2000. Mm -hmm. And then you won the 70.3 World Championships in 2008. And then you were attempting to defend your world championship in 2009. And you had a, a very unfortunate crash during that race. And then from, from my perspective, just from an outsider's perspective, watching the sport of triathlon, you kind of just disappeared and then reappeared in a different capacity and in, in, in not an athlete capacity several, several years later. And I think let's kind of pick the story up there with that crash in 2009. Sure. So, um, you know, 2008, uh, winning the, the world championship title at 70.3 was a, a dream come true for me. I'd always dreamed of winning a world championship. And so that was really one of the pinnacles of my career. Um, probably as almost as much of a highlight as competing in the Olympics. In 2009, when I went back to defend my title, I felt like I was in very good shape. My training had gone well. I felt like my fitness was actually higher than it was the year before. So I, I had uh, pretty good hopes of, of being able to defend my title. But when there's chaos, chaos happens. And that race was chaos. Uh, the previous year, they sent the women three minutes behind the men. And we caught the backpack of uh, the professional men. And there was a little bit of interference of, of the men's group with, with the top ladies. So somebody had the brilliant idea to send the women off first. And I don't remember what the time gap was, but we got caught on the bike. And I was with a pack of, I don't know, maybe four women. And uh, Julie Dibbins was off the front. And we got, we got caught at the absolute worst spot on the course, the most narrow spot. And we were going very fast with you know, I don't even remember how many men were in that group. It was terrible. And, and, you know, you're in a draft pack. It's a non-drafting race. And we weren't really in a spot where you could drop out the back. So finally, we uh, got around this sort of narrow section with a U-turn. And I had to make a calculated decision. Do I leave the group with these women who are my competitors 
and just let them go? Or do I stay in this draft pack? And ultimately, I made the decision to drop out the back. So I let the pack go, and I was by myself for quite some time, and then got caught by the second pack of men. And the second pack of men towed me, towed me back up to those women. I guess they had also <laughs> gotten dropped from that group. Um, and, you know, I'm trying to be legal, but it's very difficult. Um, it's narrow. It's all the things. And so now we're in a group again, not as large and unwieldy as the one we'd been in. And we went through an aid station around mile 45. And it was a very hot day. And thinking about the run, I wanted some cold water to cool myself off. I always had a propensity for overheating. So I went to grab a water bottle to get some cold water. And the person who was uh, handing me the water bottle did not let go of the water bottle. He was kind of holding it from the center, grabbing onto it. So when I pulled, his reaction was to pull back. And so I... Um, You're stealing my water bottle. Pretty much that's what happened. <laughs> but it was your water bottle. But it was my water bottle and going at the speed I was going, even though I slowed down and I'm on two wheels and, you know, he yanked and down I went. I flipped over the front of my bike and broke my collarbone and I did um, really severe damage to my rib cage. The collarbone I had surg- surgically repaired a few days later, never a big deal, still have the nifty hardware. Um, the bigger issue was my rib cage. I uh, broke multiple ribs which they never actually were able to find on imaging. Um, All of the fractures were found uh, during surgical repairs. And I did severe neuropathic damage to uh, the intercostal nerves that run in between the ribs. They don't like to be stretched. And because I fractured ribs and I tore ligaments and I tore um, intercostal muscle off the bone, the scaffolding to protect the nerves was gone. And so, um, you know, about nine of those nerves got overstretched. And so I have a condition called intercostal neuralgia, which is nerve damage to those intercostal nerves. And it's very painful and it affects uh, a lot of things. I get muscle spasms. I have shortness of breath. It affects my diaphragm. Um, I get severe nausea, so it causes a host of problems. I've had a lot of surgeries over the years to correct it, Um, but unfortunately, the the pain is with me all day, every day. I tried to compete for one more year um, because at that time, they kept telling me, oh, well, your ribs should be healed, and again, nothing showed up on imaging, and I said, well, maybe they should be healed, but they're not. I still have pain. Something's wrong. I did manage to win one race that year, the Boulder 70.3. Pretty much every other race I dropped out of because I get off the bike and I just was hurting too much to race. Uh, And so I retired from triathlon uh, in 2010. And I actually spent uh, maybe five years, six years um, doing some competitive masters running and qualified for the Olympic trials in 2012 and 2016 um, in the marathon. But all the while, still trying to navigate this difficulty with pain and, and uh, also uh, had some other health issues that were recently diagnosed uh, as a, another condition I deal with. And, you know, what I was finding was that, you know, they just want to throw medicine at you. You know, here, take this pain pill, take this, take that. And none of it was really working. And so my husband encouraged me to try cannabis. And I was very reluctant to do so for many reasons. As a professional athlete, cannabis was not legal during my time in any form. Those rules have changed. Um, Now CBD is legal and THC um, you can have up to a certain threshold. Um, The other reason why I felt a stigma was that I spent eight years at the University of Colorado doing um, drug abuse research in young adults and adolescents. And marijuana is one of the drugs that we looked at. And I saw all the very bad things that happened. And it just did not occur to me that there could be some medical use to cannabis. The third thing was, even though it was legal in Colorado medically, it was not yet legal recreationally. And I was just too ashamed to ask my doctor for a prescription. 
So when it became legal recreationally in 2014, one of those barriers got lifted. And at that time, my pain just became so unbearable that I wasn't sleeping. So I marched into the dispensary and said, give me something for pain and for sleep. And I walked out with uh, some products and uh, got myself a little too high because they didn't tell me how to dose it properly. Um, and so, uh, but during this, you know, sort of too high situation, I did get some good sleep. And so I um, realized that there could probably be some efficacy for me once I figured out how to use it properly. And so that's how I sort of got started with cannabis. Well, one of the things that, I, that I've really appreciated about you and your story is you, you've kind of come into this cannabis use from an aspect where a lot of other people and a lot of other athletes have come from. They've got some medical condition that they just can't figure out. And they're literally kind of at, the, at their wits end and they're throwing stuff at a dartboard. But what's unique about your situation is you have these two components of your educational background at the University of Colorado where you were working in a, you know, where you were being educated for, you know, drug rehab and alcohol rehab and things like that. But then also with your training over at John Hopkins and you're able to like synergize those and make sense out of your anecdote, which I think is, which I think is really is unique in our kind of culture and in the ultramarathon culture of, of anecdote where we tend to rely on what did this coach do and what did that athlete do and what did this athlete do? You were able to take that and apply these pieces of education that you had into something that could be translated not only to you, but also to other athletes and to other users. Well, that's really sort of how my um, research journey um, started was because I did hear a lot of anecdotes of people using cannabis for various medical maladies and uh, I was hearing a lot of really beneficial stories and, and people were, you know, oh, you know, it helped me with this and it helped me with that. And, but, you know, as a scientist, anecdote really doesn't go very far. It's a good place to start because if you hear a lot of people saying the same thing, then you think, wow, there must be something there. Let's take a deeper look. And so when I went to the literature to see, well, what does science say? There wasn't a lot. So people say, though, there's no research in cannabis. And that's not true. There's not no research. But there's not a lot of research because of the federal regulations. It makes it difficult to do the gold standard of clinical trials. But still, people have been studying cannabis for a long time, whether it's in animal models or doing observational studies. And so I recognize this gap. And as an epidemiologist who has studied cannabis, so I'm a cannabis epidemiologist, I realized I was in a position to help close that gap and, and be able to do some studies to answer the questions that people have. And so in 2018, I formed Canna Research Group. Uh, we're a very small but uh, mighty group of, of uh, physicians and PhDs who are interested in learning about cannabis and doing outcome studies and uh, hope, you know, hoping to answer some questions of um, benefits and adverse effects for different demographic groups that are using cannabis for various diseases. Well, and we're going to talk about some of those studies in just a little bit, but before we get into that, I mean, both you and I can remember this as Coloradans. I've lived in Colorado since 2001. So we, I lived through the, I guess the prohibition days, right? The pre, the pre-medical cannabis days. And then when they opened up the medicinal laws, and then from then they opened up the recreational laws as well. And to, to, to your point, when the medicinal laws were first opened up, it really was the Wild West. I mean, you had, you had medicinal marijuana shops opened up on every corner. 
the medical network really didn't know how to how to deal with it. The legislature didn't really know how to deal with it. They didn't know how to like keep the controls on the different businesses and where all the medicine was going it and how to, it wasn't tested. It wasn't tested. The quality and the the quality of the product. Who knows what you were actually getting? And I, I want to get your perspective on seeing that entire arc from when that initially started in Colorado and some of the early adopter states to kind of like where we are now. You know, people still refer to it as the Wild West, uh, which is interesting <laughs> because it has come so far. Um, but, you know, there, there is a lot that needs to be done. I mean, the, the whole aspect of, of testing has really come a long way. My husband, in fact, um, does IT for a state-regulated testing lab. So uh, if you buy cannabis at a dispensary, then by definition, it has to be tested somewhere for things like potency and for pesticides and mold and for other kinds of things. So when you go to a dispensary, you walk out with your product and it has a sticker on it that tells you what's in it. So at least now you can be more comfortable knowing what you're getting, that, that it's going to be you know, what you asked for. Yeah. And to, to paint that picture a little bit, I know you, you chose to not partake in some of the early medicinal marijuana you know, things that were going on in Colorado because of the stigma. I was in a really similar position with a completely different type of health issue that I was trying to deal with where I was trying to clear up some neurological issues. I was at my wits end and things like that. And finally, very, very similar to how your husband convinced you, my wife convinced me, she's like, you need, you should try this. Like you need to get over it. I'm a Texan red state. You know, we were, we grew up in the, it's a gateway drug and all that kind of stuff. And I was, I was very reluctant to come into that process, but I, but I actually did. And Corinne, who's on the other end of the line right now, can can uh, can profess to this, but I do an inordinate amount of research whenever I jump into something like that. And so I, d- I did that with just trying to find a physician. That was like the first step. I wanted to find a high quality physician that wouldn't just give me a medical card that would actually evaluate me and give me some guidance on the entire kind of on the, on the entire process. And so I spent maybe a couple of weeks doing research on just the physician side of it. Who can I trust? I reached out to people I knew. I, you know, called this person, called that person or whatever. And I finally settled on this group up in, uh, up, up in Denver. And I, I, I went up to this group up in Denver kind of expecting to have a normal, completely normal kind of medical checkup. And I, and I walk in and it looked like a normal medical office and I check in, I check into my appointment and I meet the physician and I tell him my, my list of symptoms. And he says, yep, you qualify, go see the front desk. And I'm like, no, 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 wait, hold on. It's like, I, I need some like counsel here on what type of product should I use? What's the dosing? Like where, you know, where can I go? Like, I don't even know what dispensary to go to and things like that. It's like, oh, just go to the, the dispensaries. They'll, 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 they'll tell you, you know, where to go. So I was like, okay. So I go to the front desk and I'm asking, I go to the front desk and the people there are very helpful. And I said, okay, so what happens now? Cause I, I hadn't done any other research on what happens now. I just did the research on who I need to see as a physician. And this, and I distinctly remember this, this guy behind the counter, he goes, well, I'll process this form and in a week you'll get your card and then you can get your weed bra. That's exactly it, how we said it. By the way, it's it. not much better. Well, and, and so- <laughs> It's still like that. I know. And so 
here I am as a, as somebody who's trying to be educated and actually solve a medical condition. And it fit every stereotype that I had going into the appointment. And then I went to the dispensaries and that fit every stereotype that I had going into the dispensaries as well. And my question for you, and you've kind of somewhat answered it, is how much has that changed? Not a whole lot, unfortunately. I went to get my, I get a medical card now. Um, I have several qualifying conditions. And the reason why I get a medical card, even though it is legal recreationally, is because uh, the products on the medical side sometimes are different. Uh, you can get different formulations. You can purchase um, more THC at a given time. Um, the ratios are different. So I continue to get a card. And, and when I went to go renew my card last year, I had that same experience. The, the doctor never looked up. Um, because this was a renewal, he just uh, signed the paper and I left. Now, at that point, I didn't really need the guidance because I'm forging my own path. But um, there are very few. I mean, I think there are some now you know, medical cannabis doctors that, that can provide some information. But for the most part, it's just uh, an assembly line. People come in, they get their box checked, and they get their card. You go to the dispensary, a lot of times the bud tenders, um, those are the people that uh, help you behind the counter. They don't have a lot of information. Um, for example, a lot of bud tenders in Colorado recommend pregnant women to use cannabis for their nausea, whereas studies show that that's a dangerous thing to do. So, you know, one of the, the purposes that we have in, in, uh, in addition to the research that we're doing is hopefully to take the research that we have to put that into education so that people like you who are trying to solve a, a medical issue and need information on dosing and maybe frequency or type or whatever can get that information. So, so in 2020, it's still difficult, I guess, is, is the picture that we're trying to paint here. In 2020, it's still hard to get information. And even when you're going, even when you're trying to do it in a careful way and in a thoughtful way, it's, it's, it's hard to find medical providers and then dispensaries that will kind of take the time and care to, to, to essentially do it right. Well, it's difficult for a few reasons. On the dispensary level, I don't know how well the bud tenders are educated in, you know, actual, you know, science behind cannabis and what you should be using for which diseases. The second problem is there isn't a lot of research anyway to direct that information. So it's starting to come out and, and some of the papers that you read now have some recommendations, but the bud tenders aren't going to go to Google Scholar or PubMed to read these papers. And right now there aren't very many like repositories of that kind of information. The issue on the medical side is that doctors are still afraid to give that out because of uh, the worry of losing their license. I will tell you the group that really is on the forefront of being able to give the information are the cannabis nurses. Um, they um, seem to have banded together and put together some good programs and have a lot of information. So if people are, are having trouble finding doctors that will provide them with the information, the cannabis nurses actually um, are doing a very, very good job. Okay. So since it's hard to find information, let's do that in this podcast. All right. So to start out with, why don't you paint this overall arc from, from an athletic perspective of what the value proposition is with cannabis and CBD to an athlete? If an athlete is out there looking at, I'm going to use this to manage pain, to use it as an ergogenic aid and things like that. What is the basic proposition that they're looking at? Well, I think we should start from the beginning and talk about cannabis. And you have the cannabis plant. And under that, we have 
um, what people, you know, CBD. Um, so you've got um, like the hemp plant, which is very high in CBD and by definition has very, very, very low levels of THC. I think it's less than 0.03%. And that's hemp and that falls under the cannabis. And we also have what we know as marijuana, which is very high in THC. And um, some of the marijuana does not have CBD and some might have some CBD. Um, and so the, the cannabis itself, the cannabinoids that we are most familiar with are THC. That's the one that that is known to make you high. And then there's CBD. That's all the rage now. And you can find it in everything from hamburgers to soda. It's hamburgers? Seriously? I haven't seen that one. Yeah, they were, that was like a whole gimmick that they were doing last year, putting it in hamburgers. Oh so CBD God. is showing up, it's showing up in clothing. You know, CBD is everywhere. And so that's sort of all the rage at this time. But there are actually hundreds of cannabinoids, um, not just THC and CBD. And um, well, why do they work? Well, because we have receptors throughout our body in our brain and, and in our bodies that, that were put there because we actually make things endogenously that bind to those receptors. But also, you know, when you um, use the plant itself, it also binds to those receptors. So we have things in our body that bind to it, but also cannabis can bind to it. And so, you know, I think it's important to understand you know, why it works is because, you know, we, we have receptors. And, and so when you're looking at, well, should I use THC or should I use CBD? When you look at where, the, so THC binds to the, what's called the CB1 receptor and CBD to the CB2 receptor. And when you look at charts of where these receptors are in the body may actually help you um, decide what's going to work better. Um, so, you know, if you're looking at the gut and you look at the receptors there, I think there's more CB2, so that's why CBD might work. Whereas if you're looking at neurological things in the brain where there's a lot of CB1, that's why THC might work better. So, you know, you can't just go at it very haphazardly. There is science behind trying to decide what to use. So the first step would be trying to figure out what your ailment is right. and figuring to, out what receptors are specific to that ailment. Right. And there are lovely pictures online that, you know, if you type in cannabis receptors, you'll find lovely, you know, diagrams where these are. So it's pretty easy to find. Um, but the other thing to understand is that there's um, something called the entourage effect. I love this term, by the way. Yep, this is like one of term. my favorite terms in physiology because I feel like we're in the movie Tombstone with like a posse behind us and we're all going to like gang up on something. Yeah, we're going to gang up on the disease <laughs> through the entourage effect. I like that. <laughs> and what the entourage effect is, is that it's the whole plant. It's that it's all of the cannabinoids, it's the terpenes and other components of the plant that have the most effect. And so when you try and isolate out various aspects of it, it may not work as well. Okay. Okay. So step number one, like we mentioned, we're trying, we're basically looking at anatomy and where the receptors are from an anatomical standpoint. Right. And just sort of understanding the plant itself and not just, gee, I'm going to use CBD because I want to feel good. It's, you know, understanding, you know, um, how it works and then deciding why are you using it? You know, just saying, well, I want to feel good is very nebulous and it's very hard to quantify. And so, you know, are you using it because you have anxiety? Are you having trouble sleeping? Do you have a sore knee? Do you have osteoarthritis? Do you have migraines? There are a whole bunch of reasons why people might want to start using cannabis. Figure out why. Okay, let's come back to that why in a second because I think that, that there are a few, we can probably narrow it down to maybe three 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 more common reasons that athletes would want to use CBD or cannabis. But before we get into that, I want to I still want to talk about this kind of overall umbrella that the CB, CBD industry is kind of fitting under with respect to uh, with respect to being an ergogenic aid. And to kind of illustrate this point, I was recently at the running event 
in Austin, Texas in December. And it's a huge industry trade show. All of the shoe manufacturers come out, all the nutrition manufacturers come out, all the different race organizers come out and things like that. Fill up the Austin Convention Center and on their trade show floor this year were 11 different CBD companies touting their CBD products for athletes and specifically for runners. There were nine different gel companies. And I remember walking around the trade show floor, going around going there, the market for CBD products cannot be bigger than the market for the ubiquitous gel, which has been around for, for, for decades. Yet here's where we are. And all of them purported that their products, their host of products cured or alleviates six or seven or eight different things. And when I see, whenever I see a proposition like that, take this and it reduces inflammation and it helps you sleep better and it'll improve your gut function and it'll uh, increase, you know, your muscle recovery and it'll cure male pattern baldness and it'll make you smell better. And, you know, there's like five or six or different things that one thing is responsible for. My skeptical hat goes on. It should. And, and it tells me, thank, thank you for validating that. And it tells me that not all of those can be true. What's your, t- what is your take on that right now? Well, my take is that all of those companies could get a letter from the FDA telling them to back down because uh, the FDA is sending out letters to various CBD companies um, that are promoting their products to do what you just said, that it's going to cure whatever. But there is no research to substantiate, to substantiate that. So um, there haven't been clinical trials to see if uh, CBD is going to cure male pattern baldness. Or, <laughs> that you know, was a joke, it, by I the know, way. I know it was. But <laughs> I, like, I don't know. It I might like not that, be. <laughs> I like that joke, so I'm going to roll with it. Or you know, whether CBD is really going to reduce inflammation. There aren't studies to show that. And so for these companies to then put that out there on their website or to tweet that out or use it in their social media in some way uh, or put it on their packaging, um, that's a problem. And the FDA is starting to crack down on that. Um, and you know that's why we're here. We want to do some of these studies and I want to work with these companies and I have actually approached some of these companies to say, hey, let's study this and see what it's doing in athletes so that you can be ahead of the game and be able to make these claims because you've now had a third party look at what your product is doing rather than just, you know, pulling this out of the air so that you can make a sale. Yeah. So I feel like I'm in, in coops in the same like boat as coop oftentimes that I'm, uh, I'm an optimistic skeptic and my, my job be it, be it writing or coaching, I think puts me in that skeptical, puts my skeptical hat on. And I was telling coop, um, just the other day that I was pulling research, um, on this topic as, as I do any topic. And when I just use like Google scholar, so something that anyone has access to on the first page of results, when I type in CBD and athletic performance on the first page of results, which is 10 or 15, um, articles or should be articles. One of them was a peer reviewed scientific journal article. The other nine to 14 were written for, sites by PhDs or MDs 
about CBD or about cannabis. Um, and that's really hard with my skeptical hat on trying to like find, find the research. And I, I know it's coming actually one of your research articles was pulled, um, that I, I pulled it when I was looking, looking for stuff. And so I know that there is research out there and that is particularly in, in clinical populations. But when I look at it for these athletic claims, I know that research is coming, but in my mind, it's just like, or in my eyes, it's not there. And that creates a lot of skepticism in me when I think about where am I going to put my dollars? Yeah, I mean, it, it is difficult. And, and the reason why we decided to um, do a study in athletes to begin with was because of this proliferation of these companies coming into the market and saying, well, we're making CBD for athletes. And my question was, well, who are the athletes that are using it? Is it helping? You know, why? They're just putting it out there because they were getting on a bandwagon. They put the cart before the horse, basically, is what happened. Mm, interesting. So, okay. So if, if an athlete is out there and they're, they're looking at this landscape and let's say they've gone through, they've gone through the, the process of saying, I, I want to try this out as an ergogenic aid. Out of all of the claims that are there, and Joanna, you're more familiar with this than either Corinne or, Corinne or, and, or I are, out of all the claims that are out there, which ones should the athletes, or which ones can the athletes look at and go, okay, that's a, that's a reasonable proposition for me to receive a benefit from? Um, reduced anxiety is something that studies have shown that CBD is useful for. Um, but when you ask what dose should it be, that's a little bit more nebulous. Um, some of the studies that they, and this isn't like pre-race anxiety. They're looking at things like um, performance anxiety before giving a talk. And they'll give somebody a very high dose of CBD. It could be a couple hundred milligrams of CBD before they- That's a they, lot, holy cow. Well, but see, it sounds like a lot to us because most of the dosing on these products is, um, you know, five milligrams or 10 milligrams. So when you hear 200 milligrams, your brain explodes because it sounds like so much, but a lot of the studies that they're doing in things like inflammatory bowel disease or with um, um, seizure disorders or anxiety, they're actually using very, very high doses. I mean, some of these studies could be using one or two milligrams per kilogram. And so when you talk about taking five milligrams or 10 milligrams a day, most people probably aren't even taking therapeutic doses of uh, CBD. Okay, so that's the first one, anxiety. What else? That's, um, there are some uh, early studies that show that CBD can be helpful for inflammatory bowel disease, things like Crohn's and colitis. Okay, Crohn's and colitis. What about any of the it's going to reduce my joint inflammation. It's going to help me anecdotal. recover better. All anecdotal. Uh, it's all anecdotal. It's going to help me sleep better. Yep. In our study that we did, now this wasn't a clinical trial. This was um, survey-based. When we asked people, you know, do you use CBD or do you use THC or do you use both? And um, in athletes who used CBD only had the least benefit compared to the athletes who were using THC or THC and CBD. So they had uh, the least endorsement of things like improved sleep or decreased pain, et cetera. And I don't want to jump ahead perhaps, but I feel like a lot of these studies, it's probably talking mostly about oral ingestion, either inhaled or in an oil. But what about, there's a huge market as well for topical or transdermal application of CBD. And I've seen, I've read some studies with, you know, with rat populations and that kind of thing, but that's not exactly humans. And I'm just really curious about, is there any validity there, given that it's a huge chunk of the market? Well, that's very difficult because a lot of the topicals aren't actually being absorbed. 
So yeah, it, it depends on the company. It depends on the driver of, of the topical. Um, and so um, I do know that somebody that has done some independent testing, uh, this person makes a topical and his is very well absorbed, but some of the competitors um, are not. So you're basically putting the topical on and it's just there. Okay. So here's the practical situation that I want to get your take on. Corinne, you ran this year's Western State, or sorry, 2019's Western States 100. So you probably yes. don't have this perspective because you zoomed through Robinson Flat at the 50K mark and we're not paying attention to this. But I sat there for maybe five or six hours and watched the vast majority of runners come through and get crewed by their friends and family and pacers and things like that. And out of the, how many runners are Western States? 360 some 69. odd. 369 runners. May, over 100 of them. And this might match up with your research that you did. Over 100 of them out of that 369 were using some product, some, some CBD product. And it, 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 it encompassed the whole range. The balms, the tinctures, the gels, the sprays. I didn't see anybody vape or, vape or smoke. I saw some people that were crewing people that were smoking, but that's another story. <laughs> people were putting it on their knees, on their feet, everywhere. And I remember looking around going, this is, this is absurd. There's, there's, too, there's too much market hype here. What, what would you say to that situation? Am I... Am I interpreting that am I interpreting that in a like over exaggerated way well in the conclusion of one of the papers that we wrote you know we talked about how athletes are early adopters of things for performance and recovery yeah so that matches up with that notion of you know athletes looking for things to give them an edge and so CBD right now it's it's readily available um, it's, you know, it's easy to get it. The topicals are easy to put on. So, you know, I can see why athletes would want to use it because it's easy, but that doesn't mean that it works. doesn't mean that it doesn't work, but it also doesn't mean that it does work. Yeah. I was going to say it's, it's fascinating in doing some background research for this and for my own interest. When you, when I go to look for transdermal CBD, what comes up primarily are patents. So people working on this, but not necessarily any, any validity on its, its application. And I wonder too, it's, I mean, I'll tell athletes all the time, like placebo effects are real and they can be really positive, but how much of this is just an expensive placebo? Like that's my biggest concern is my, are my dollars still spent, like better spent elsewhere? Well, maybe. I mean, the placebo effect is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, if you're buying CBD and you have pain in your knee and your knee pain goes away, does it really matter if it was the CBD or the placebo effect? Your, your no, pain is gone. That's great. That's <laughs> all, like, exactly. Like, placebo, like I am all for positive placebos, um, but like I know that that's a real, at least the skeptical side of me knows that that's like a real possibility. Right. And so, but when you're talking about, you know, a little bit of knee pain versus somebody with a very serious disease, those are going to be two very different things. Very, 100%. Absolutely. And so, you know, for the knee pain, for the runner who wants to continue running and the placebo makes them better, that's great. But if you're somebody, you know, with inflammatory bowel disease and the medications you're taking aren't working and your quality of life sucks, uh, the placebo effect is only going to go so far and you want a product that's actually going to be healing. But, but what, yeah. I'm, what I'm hearing from you and you're a cannabis advocate. Can, can I 
characterize that correctly? Uh, Advocate might not be the, yes. you're a cannabis researcher, but you are pro-cannabis. I, um, I am pro the truth. Pro the truth. Okay, cool. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm a cannabis user. I think that if people want to use cannabis, they should have access to it. But I also know that it's not the panacea. Um, there are a lot of benefits, but there are also risks. Um, people end up in the emergency room um, because uh, they have um, extreme vomiting or um, stomach pain. It's called cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. Some people can get um, psychotic as well. So it, you know, it's not without risk. Um, but I also, but there's potential for a lot of benefits. So I want to search for the answers so that people can use it safely and effectively. But let's come back to the we want to figure out what the answers are because I know that's something that you're also very passionate about. Why don't we switch gears a little bit and go into some of the research that you did with the, with the peace study. And I want to see if this kind of lines up with some of Corinne and I's experience with, uh, uh, with what we've seen out in the field. Corinne, you want to chime in really quick? Yeah. I'm just, and I think this will tie into kind of where you're, where you're going is that what I'm hearing is that there is at least with your, with your study, which we're about to jump into that, the the group of users who only use CBD saw the least benefit. And so we're in this really interesting conundrum all of a sudden where we can legally use CBD as much as we want, essentially in competition, out of competition, but maybe THC or THC in combination with CBD has much greater benefits, but then at least at the elite level where you're being drug tested, that becomes more complicated. And so trying to navigate that for an athlete, I think becomes really tricky and really interesting. And I think that's kind of where hopefully the research will help us dissect that. Yes. And in talking about being an advocate, I am definitely an advocate of THC being taken off the banned list. Um, I don't think it should be a threshold drug. I don't think it should be illegal in, uh, in competition. Um, maybe for certain sports where there could be a danger involved, um, maybe for those sports, uh, it could be banned. But overall, I think it should just be taken off the list. So let's walk through that history a little bit because some of the listeners are, are not going to be familiar with it. So as you mentioned earlier, THC and CBD were banned by WADA in all forms with zero tolerance, meaning if you had any of it in your bloodstream, that, that constituted a positive test. When was it that CBD came off of the banned list? I actually don't know. Okay. It came off the banned list at some point. That's fine. They raised the THC threshold from zero to 50 nanograms, which is still pretty, pretty light, I, will, I would categorize as. Mm-hmm. Okay. They most recently raised that threshold again from 50 to 150 nanograms. Mm-hmm. Can you... I think they actually raised it again. Oh, they did. I, I do. I think it... Don't quote For me For 2020? I, I, but I, somebody did tell me now it's 180. Okay. I, I don't know for certain, okay. but... Nobody's going to know what that means. Right. So, and, and I can't even describe what that means. Um, the, the threshold for occupational drug testing is much lower. It's usually 34 yeah, is what so, I've seen most so common. It's, yeah. But what does that mean? Does that mean it's, it's that you took an edible of 20 milligrams a night before? Does it mean that you smoked a week before? That's unanswerable because everybody metabolizes it differently. And so there really is no way to say to somebody, well, you'll be safe if you stop using it before you get tested for X amount. Or if you only use a couple milligrams, you'll be fine. There is, there is no way to define that because everybody is so different. And so if somebody is being drug tested, um, they just should not be using THC because 
you know, at some point they could have a positive. Now, I know that there are a lot of athletes who are using THC and we're not seeing as many positives as there are people who are using it. So certainly there are athletes that are taking that risk, but it is a risk. Yeah, the, the orientation of, of, I have a little bit of insight in, into this since USADA is based in Colorado Springs and we have a lot of mutual friends there. But the, but the and USADA is not the one who came up with this policy. This is WADA, by the way. But they obviously have to work hand in hand. WADA is trying to thread this very fine needle where they don't want to catch people that are using marijuana recreationally and try to prohibit it in competition. Now that 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 threading of that needle is quite difficult, as you mentioned, because of the metabolism between individuals is different. Just like any other threshold drug, by the way, that's not unique to that's not unique to THC, where people metabolize drugs differently. That's any drug any anywhere. Drug. It doesn't matter whether it's on the water list or not. And um, I should also say, I do think that there's some component of exercise and dehydration that also might change that threshold. And if you haven't consumed THC in quite some time, I mean, this is just a theory. I have read a few papers that that also speak to this. But I, I think it could just release it into your bloodstream as well. Yeah, have the exercise. One of the interesting things that's happening in drug testing right now is the tests are getting so precise. Some of the previous thresholds are getting like recalibrated to a certain extent, and especially the zero tolerance drugs. And we, we see this in like the mix, mixed martial arts setting a lot, where previously undetectable levels of things are now being detected for whatever reason. That's a whole, that's a whole, whole other story. But, but suffice to say, I like your position that you are an advocate that you think THC should be removed from the banned list. Correct. Okay. So let, let's, let's current, go ahead. I was going to say just, that would be akin to like alcohol. Alcohol is banned, but only with specific sports where it'd be a danger. Things like archery, shooting, uh, I think driving and sailing all have alcohol listed as banned substances as opposed to any other sport. And then I will say too, um, you can buy, obviously it's not going to tell you what you're testing at, but you can buy a THC like at home test kit, like a 15 pack for $15 on Amazon. So if you're really concerned, you, you can probably do some self-experimentation as well. <laughs> yes. Somebody, uh, I was talking about this subject with, uh, I won't reveal his or her name, but somebody, somebody in the know in the, uh, anti-doping community and that person, told me that anybody who is ever worried about testing positive for THC in competition should, should do exactly that. Not, to, not that you should rely on it, but it could give you a decent gauge. Anyway, um, that's just another anecdotal story. Let's, let's kind of get back to brass tacks here. So we want to talk about the study that, uh, that you did, the peace study. Why don't you take the listeners through what that study is, and then we can go over some of the key findings of it. Sure. So... In uh, September of 2018, uh, Cannabis Research Group initiated the Athlete Peace Survey. Peace stands for Pain, Exercise, and Cannabis Experience. I love that, by the way. I Thank love you. the fact that, that you made the acronym something that was kind of like cleverly related to marijuana use. No, thank you. We were actually initiating um, peace studies in other groups. Oh, um, so oh, we're going to be kind of using that whole notion of pain, exercise, and cannabis for other disease groups. So um, hopefully next month we're going to initiate uh, a peace study in allergic and asthmatic individuals. Mm, okay. So, uh, so that was the acronym we chose. And uh, what we were trying to do with the study was basically find out you know, what percentage of athletes um, are using cannabis. And when I say athlete, it was very loosely defined. Um, we didn't care 
how long you've been an athlete. We didn't really care what sport you were doing. We didn't care how good you are at your sport because we asked about all of that in our questionnaire. Um, the criteria, though, was that you had to be over 21 because that's a legal age to um, purchase cannabis uh, in uh, states where it's legal. I mean, I guess some kids can get... Um, uh, can get medical for various things, but you know these were adult athletes, so we chose 21 as our lower age limit, no upper age limit. We used uh, social media for recruiting, um, as well as email blasts uh, that were put out by some coaches. Um, and we ended up with, uh, how many people took the survey? I think about 1,160, I think, took the survey. Uh, and we found that 26% of the athletes who took our survey... Um, responded yes to the question, have you used cannabis? And that was THC and or CBD in the last two weeks. Hmm. Interesting. And, di and so did you get into, are they using it in an athletic context versus a recreational context? So we specifically asked if they were using it for um, medical or recreational purposes. Um, and then we also had a checklist of um, benefits that they might have felt. And we also had a checklist of adverse effects they might have had. And we did ask about improved performance or decreased performance. Okay, so this is a, this is a, it's a, it's a self-respondent type of study. You Correct. went out and you found these people. They self-selected themselves as athletes and they went through the questionnaire and answered it. What are the, the, like the key find, what are the key pieces of data that you're taking away from this? Um, well, so you asked um, whether we asked uh, if they were using it recreationally or not. And so I'm going to read you some of the statistics that we found. Uh, so about 33% said that they were using it medically. Uh, about 29% said they were using it recreationally. And 38% said they were using it both medically and recreationally. So it's interesting. People really are differentiating for their purpose of use. Um, when we talk about which cannabinoid are people using, 20% um, said that they use THC. Um, almost 34% said they use CBD and 46% said they use both THC and CBD. And when you look at the age breakdown, um, athletes over 40 primarily were the ones that were using CBD only. And they are the ones who are also using it medically. Huh. That's a staggering, I mean, to me, that's a staggering percentage. Did that, did that seem staggering to you or were you just kind of like, yeah, this makes sense? Which percentage? The, any, any, all of them. Like I would, I would expect, and this is why I'm not in this area, I would expect all those to be at least half of what you just reported. So that, that more people would be using CBD than what we said? No, just everything. Uh -huh. Everything could just cut it in half. Okay. Um, you know, I don't really know what I expected because a lot of this was exploratory. Most of the studies that have been done in athletes have been done in adolescent athletes looking at cannabis use disorder um, and uh, been done in university or elite athletes. Again, also use, looking at um, you know, disordered use and not looking at it in the way that we are. So I really had no context to put this into. Huh. Interesting. So you've got this, you've got this data set now of basically how, how many and what types of cannabis is being used amongst an athletic population within that athletic population. Where does the research go from here? Well, I mean, there are a lot of things that we could do to um, hone in more on some of this information. Uh, we don't have information on how many milligrams of CBD or THC or combo that people are using. We don't know the ratios if people are using both. Are they using a one-to-one -one or a five-to-one? 
very difficult to get that information. People just don't know. When you ask somebody, you know, well, how much CBD are you using? They'll say, oh, I'm using, you know, three drops or I'm using an entire dropper full. And then I'll say, well, what, how much is that? Oh, I have no idea. And so some of it comes from the fact that there's, um, the labeling is not the same across companies. There's no standardization. Um, a lot of the labeling is difficult to understand so that you really don't know what a dropper full is. Um, some of it is that people just don't read it. They just say, okay, I'm going to take a few drops in the morning. Maybe I'll take a couple of drops at night. And then the same thing for those ratios. They just don't know if it's a one-to-one or a five-to-one. And if you're smoking it or vaping it, again, it becomes very difficult to quantify how many milligrams you're using. So, you know, what's in a puff? So um, that's why it became difficult and why we decided not to hone in on that. We didn't want to get people confused. So needless to say, there's a dose-response relationship that is completely unknown from the consumer side of it, meaning how much, how, what doses are consumers taking, just fundamentally, nor is there a dose-response relationship in terms of X amount of CBD with this type of uh, THC ratio does this in the body. Neither one of those seem like they're very well known. It's difficult. There are some studies now that are coming out um, where they're, they're getting some of this information and, um, you know, there are some apps that people use where they can track their use. So let's say that you're using cannabis for something like osteoarthritis. Um, if you have the wherewithal to track your use all the time, you can log into the app and say, you know, I used XYZ product and um, it had this much in it or the app knows and then you say you took it and it made me feel like this. And then you can aggregate the data over all the people that use the app and you can come up with, you know, some conclusions um, there are some, um, dispensaries that are kind of like conglomerates. So they, they have, you know, lots of dispensaries and again, they track their patients. And so you can get some information from that as well. Um, it's still new. Not a lot of publications can't really derive conclusions yet. Well, I, so both of you and I are training peaks users. Corinne's a training peaks user as well. Maybe we can get training peaks to include it as a custom metric or something like well, that. Well, that would be awesome. So Training Peaks, if you're listening, if you want to fund a study, um, I'll, I'll pull it off for you. Dirk was on one of my very early podcasts and I, I've known him for many, many, many years. And may, may, I, can put a good, I can put a good word in with him. Maybe we can get it in beta somehow. Well, I mean, I think that'd be great, you know, because everybody wants these answers. Yeah, and, totally. you know, like I mentioned, you know, um, a few minutes ago about the FDA cracking down on these companies that are making claims because they're unsubstantiated because the research isn't out there. But then when you go to these companies and say, well, I can do research for you, they run the other direction. Seriously? And so there's this conundrum of the, the data needs to be there in order to make the claims but nobody seems to want to pay to get the data. So it's, uh, it's sort of a difficulty. See, so this, is, this has always been one of my issues with any new ergogenic aid, whether it's in the nutrition space, supplement space, or device space that I have. Is I, I, and this is just a personal thing. I give the company two years to produce the data. Meaning if you come out with something that has some sort of, here's your favorite word, Corinne, bioplausible mm-hmm. mechanism of action. Oh, good. I like that. <laughs> if, you have, if, you have, if you have an ergogenic aid that is somehow bioplausible, you're allowed to go into the market and say, this is how we think it works. But my standard is you get two years per, to produce some type of research to back those initial claims up. After those two years, I don't give you a pass anymore. And I just, that's what I'm having a hard time with the CBD companies is they've had that, they've had that length of time 
and not a lot has been produced. Yeah, it's it's a problem. Wow, interesting. Um, okay, so you mentioned we don't have a lot of answers, but we but but the, I can still give some advice. Okay, that's what is that's exactly where I was going to go. We don't have a lot of answers. So let's say you're in the position an athlete comes up to you and hey, I have chronic tendinopathy. I can't fix it. I don't want to take a lot of opi- opioids. I've been through physical therapy. I've been to the. I've been in an orthopedic setting. This is an avenue that I want to try to get to 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 get control over this type of tendinopathy. And that would be a common. I would say a. And that's as a coach. That's a common question that I get asked. How would you go about advising that type of athlete? Well, I think it would be a few things. Uh, one is determining whether the athlete is open to using THC or if they only want to use CBD. Okay. Uh, let's say let's say the answer to that is yes. That they want to use both. Yeah, they're they're into the entourage effect. I okay. just wanted to use that term. Okay. They're into the entourage I like effect. That. So uh, the very first thing is to understand that in the world of cannabis, that there is a mantra, and it's start low, go slow. So you want to start at the lowest dose and then work your way up slowly. So you may not have an effect at the beginning. Um, As long as you're not having adverse effects with small doses, then you can work your way up slowly. Um, So let's start with, well, which product do I use? Because it's hard to know which product to use. And I'm not going to tell anybody which product to use. What I'm going to tell people is that do your homework. There are um, independent testers like Consumer Labs and um, some universities, and you can do a search online, um, independent testing of cannabis or independent testing of CBD. And these companies will go buy things off the shelf and they will test it to make sure that it actually has, mostly they do this with CBD because if you're purchasing something with THC, you're buying it at a dispensary. And if you're buying it at a dispensary, at least in Colorado, and I believe this to be true for other states, that it's been tested by some third party, um, you know, government regulated lab. So that's less of an issue um, when you're looking at THC because it's been like my husband's lab. You know, they do this testing and you walk out of the dispensary and you know CBD, you can buy it online, you can buy it at CVS, you can buy it at Ideal Market. It doesn't go through the same rigorous testing. So the first thing you want to know is that you are purchasing from a reputable company that um, is either transparent about um, testing and they put a certificate of analysis on their website or that one of these third-party testers has sort of given it a, a gold stamp. And so that would be the first thing, is that you want to purchase a product that you know has CBD in it, because a very staggering percentage of these companies are selling what they call CBD, and they may not actually have CBD in it at all. Um, It could actually have THC in it, which is a problem for people who are getting drug tested. Sometimes they have other things in there that's not even mentioned, um, like melatonin and other fillers. So uh, if you're purchasing CBD, not from a dispensary, make sure it's coming from somewhere reputable. And do you, so I know you're not, you're not, you're not going to tell an athlete or a client what specific type of product to go to, but can you at least counsel them on what the reputable companies are? Or do you take a hands-off approach and say, you do your research? Well, I mean, for a specific person, I will, um, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that on a podcast podcast, because I don't want it to look like I'm endorsing a company, which, you know, I don't want to do. I I totally appreciate that. And just to, just to shamelessly plug one of the aspects of this podcast is I do not take any sponsorships for it. And that's part of the reason is just because of that is because I want to be able to talk about products and things like that in a, 
in just a free flowing fashion. So I appreciate where you're going from there. So let, let's, so you mentioned the certificate analysis. Yep. What about the, the length of time that the company has been in business? Is that any indicator that they're going to have a product that has in it what it says on the label? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Yep. So it's really just coming from doing some homework to, and, and there are reputable companies out there. And there's more than one. So, you know, they're... they're it's uh, not a needle in a haystack. Right. So, you know, <laughs> you will have some choices. All right. So that's the first thing is to make sure that you're purchasing your cannabis from, or your CBD, your CBD or your cannabis um, from, or marijuana, I should say, it's all cannabis, from somewhere reputable. Then you have to decide um, what route of administration do you want? Um, do you want a topical? Do you want an oil? Do you want a spray? Do you want to vape it? Do you want to smoke it? Um, so there are a lot of ways that you can actually consume uh, cannabis. So that's the next thing that somebody needs to decide. Do any of those, I know you're, I, I'm going to try to pin you down a little bit as much as I can, and you can feel free to tell me to shove it. That, I'm not going to get offended. Are, are any of those, in your opinion, better routes of administration than others? They're all different and everybody's going to respond differently. I've tried them all. Um, as an asthmatic, um, I don't smoke. Um, I mean, I have in the past and it just destroys my lungs. That's not a route of administration that I personally use. Um, vaping, um, I on occasion will vape. Now there's been this whole vaping crisis. Oh gosh, um, And yeah. that's been very difficult. And um, most of the products that people have had this lung disease from are coming from illegally purchased um, off the street um, vape. Um, again, so you want to make sure that you're getting it from a reputable place, uh, dispensary. Um, the reason why I personally vape on very rare occasion is that the onset of action is very quick so that you, you take a hit of a vape. Um, it works fast. And when I have severe pain or if my diaphragm is in spasm so much, I'm hiccuping, I can't wait for an edible to work. Um, so if you need instantaneous relief, a vape is very good. Um, if you use like an edible, it's going to have a much longer onset of action. So it could take 45 minutes to uh, over an hour, but then it's going to last much longer as well. So I will use an edible before I go to bed. Um, and that way it gets me through most of the night. Tink, like things like tinctures somewhere in between, you know, they don't take as long to work, but again, the, uh, it won't last as long either. But even in our like narrow, I find this fascinating, even in the narrow use case of, I have a tendinopathy, just say it's patellar tendonitis or something like that. You wouldn't necessarily directly go to, oh, let's get you on a THC and CBD topical because it's going to be the closest route of, of administration to that source of pain. You would still say, let's try a few of these different routes of administration and see what works. I mean, if you're talking just about a tendinopathy, I would probably start with a topical. Okay. Um, again, from a reputable company that you know is going to be well-absorbed. Um, but that, that would be a good place to start. In the, in, in the results of our study, I mean, topicals worked well for muscle pain so, or uh, tendon pain, you know, that kind of pain. So it is a good place to start. And anecdotally, even though we don't like anecdote, but anecdotally, um, people seem to respond well to topicals for that kind of pain. Okay, so we've got these first two steps, find the reputable company and then figure out the route of administration. What's next? Uh, dosing. Dosing. Okay, let's go over dosing. And I think this is a good place to further reinforce the entourage effect with, with a THC and CBD ratio. So let's talk about the fact that where we started, and that's that most athletes are using CBD and CBD is legal. So if you're going to use just CBD by itself, you know, most of the time you'll probably start with maybe five milligrams and you're going to, you know, maybe work your way up. And again, I should state, talk to a doctor, 
I'm just going to give that caveat, mm-hmm. even though doctors don't know anything <laughs> and they, or they may be reluctant. I, okay, such I, a hard piece I, of advice It's not that they don't give. say anything, that they don't know anything, but a lot of doctors may not know something. But really, if you do have concerns or if you're on a lot of medications and you want to make sure that you don't have drug-drug interactions, you do speak to a medical professional um, if you have concerns. So I'm going to okay. offer that that caveat. Um, but, um, you know, uh, there was a, a paper that, uh, was put out where they did give some recommendations about where to start. And so with CBD, they recommend starting at five milligrams and then adding like maybe two and a half to five milligrams every few days until you get to a therapeutic dose, meaning a therapeutic dose where you feel better for the thing that you're treating. So you've gotten, like I mentioned earlier in the podcast to find what you're treating. Um, so here we're treating a tendinopathy, um, and let's say your topical didn't work, so now you're going to some kind of oral administration. You might want to start with five milligrams, work your way up. So you're looking at the range of products. Let's say you've determined it's a tincture. You're looking at the range of products, and you'd say pick the one that has the least amount, start there, see how you feel, dose up, titrate up from there. So it's not that you're picking the product that has the least amount. Um, you're just taking the least amount of that product. Oh, so you it. could okay. still okay, sure. buy a bottle of CBD that has 500 milligrams of it. And you want to figure out, you know, how do I get five milligrams out of this 500 milligram bottle? Okay. And this is why it becomes very difficult. You have to do some math. And that's why when you ask people, you know, how much you're taking, you know, there's some bottles that have 250 and there's some that have a thousand. And so there's just no consistency, but you want to start with maybe five and work your way up slowly until you get to a dose that you're like, okay, I feel better. Maybe you never get to that dose. And so if that happens, and let's say you get to 100 milligrams of CBD, and you're like, man, I still just feel terrible, that's when you want to think about adding some THC. Okay. I, 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 okay, so now I'm understanding the order. So you're, you're either recommending or you're just saying most athletes are going to start with CBD only. They're going to get to a certain point, and maybe it's the upper end of whatever the recommended dosage is. And if they're still not having in relief, that's when you would recommend to add in some THC to that, to the mix there? Well, some people might feel comfortable starting off with a CBD THC combo. And so you skip that whole CBD step, but, uh, but because, you know, we're talking about what's legal for WADA and CBD is legal, that would be the natural place to start. But some people may not be uh, fearful of being drug tested and maybe they've already tried CBD. Maybe they like THC. Uh, Maybe they know it makes them sleep better. But for those who are starting with CBD only, that's where you'd start. So, Don't put the whole patch on all at once. Right. So, <laughs> so then you would add, and, you, and again, um, you would add THC maybe one milligram at a time. So very, very, very small, small amounts compared very to small. the CBD amounts. Yeah. Um, so that then you'd have a ratio with a lot of CBD and a little bit of THC. And that's where the edibles are kind of nice because you can cut them up into small pieces and you know work it down to a one or two milligrams, which you can add in. Or if you already know, gee, you know, a 21 ratio works well, 20 being the higher amount of CBD. Um, a lot of these products already come in these ratios so that you don't have to sit around and mix and match. And so, you know, I've tried all sorts of ratios from one to one to 20 to one. And for me, I find that a five to one ratio, uh, more CBD than THC, um, is something that I can microdose throughout the day. I cut into small pieces, um, helps me with nausea, helps with my appetite. Um, helps with some spasms, and I just take that throughout the day. Um, at night, I use a, an edible, just straight up THC. I think this would be a good place to interject. Why having a ratio that has more CBD to THC, the consumer is going to have a lesser chance of actually experiencing any sort of psychoactive type of event? 
So why don't you go over wh why that's the case and what's happening neurologically there? So what happens is when you add CBD in to THC, CBD kind of takes away that high because it loosely binds to the same receptor. And, um, and again, because everybody's metabolism is very different, um, like some people do very well on a one-to-one -one ratio, so equal amounts. Uh, for me, it still makes me feel a little high and I can't get my work done. Um, even at a two-to-one, I don't like it so much, but a five-to-one is that sweet spot. But everybody's so different, so my five-to-one could be somebody else's 20-to-one. So, you know, it's going to take a little bit of experimentation to figure out what works best. Is, is, uh, um, is when people go to the hospital or people have some sort of adverse effect from taking too much THC and the edible crisis here in Colorado is a great example of that, where we have all these people that come in from out of state, they want to participate in the recreational marijuana and they go find an edible and they don't realize that it's going to take you know, 40 or 60 minutes to actually have, have an effect. And so they overdose, they get admitted to the hospital. Is it still the case where they're using, where they're treating that with CBD to take away the high? Is that still a, like a plausible way to treat that condition? I mean, I think that some people try to do that. I'm not really sure once you get into the situation where you're so bad, you're in the emergency room. You're screwed. Um, I'm not really <laughs> sure, you know, what they're doing. I mean, I, I've heard that like, you know, with, with this cannabis hyperemesis, the one where you're vomiting, they say mm -hmm. that hot baths seem to bring that down or some other kinds of things. Um, so once you get into that situation, um, you're, it's difficult. You to, don't know if it's going to work It's or not. difficult to get out of that. Yeah. Okay. It's yeah, that's I've, how they diagnose that in, in like an ER setting. If someone comes in and they say that the only thing that makes them better is a hot shower. We're like, oh, okay, this is, this is hyperemesis from, from THC consumption. But, like but, it's one of the only indicators. But Joanna, you, to one of your points earlier, a lot of, a lot of, a big reason that we don't know what the correct treatment for that is, is because we can't do research on it. And it's difficult, and that's a difficult study to do too, because you know you're not going to give people hyperemesis. So now you're right. kind of trying to figure out, you know, epidemiologically, what are the characteristics that are similar among people that are coming in, and why are they, why do they have a propensity for this? Okay, Let, um, I want to talk a, 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 just for a little bit about some sociological aspects of this, because there's still stigma. And I would say the stigma is heightened in the athletic community around cannabis use. And in the, the trail and ultra running community, there's actually kind of two polarized parts of the fence on this. It's almost like Colorado Springs where we have two very polarized political affiliations. <laughs> but we, ha we have a section of trail runners that they are openly, they openly admit that they use cannabis. They like getting high and going running out on the trails. That's just part of our, that's just part of our culture. And then you have a certain section of the population, uh, the athletic population and the trail running population that carry, that carries with them a stigma that this is, that this is wrong, that it's a, it's a gateway drug. It's a schedule, you know, it's a schedule one drug. It's still illegal in a lot of States. And I, I want you to kind of like talk about that a little bit because you went through that personally, but how have you seen that change in athletic populations over the last few years now that more and more States are legalizing this? I mean, there will always be people who think that cannabis is a nefarious drug and nobody should be using it. And you'll not change those people's minds and that's fine. Not everybody has to be on board with it. Um, but it definitely, um, the stigma is much less than when I first started using cannabis when people would say, oh, you're a stoner now and you know, say all sorts <laughs> of things that I was like, all right, you know, that's fine, but I'm not. Um, so yes, there's been a shift. Um, 
I think there will always be people who just uh, are anti-cannabis. Not everybody has to be on board with it. Yeah. Okay. That's fair enough. Um, I'm going to ask you one of my favorite questions that I have with all the guests and Karen, I want you to load up a question as well while I'm thinking, while I'm thinking about this, but you're, you're, you're kind of in a situation where you're, you're helping to pioneer the research. If you could wave a magic wand and fast forward 20 years from now and accomplish everything that you want to accomplish right now in terms of cannabis research, what would that look like? Um, personalized cannabis medicine. Okay. And what does that mean? We know the dosing, we know for, the type. For individuals. For individuals. For so, individuals. So, so somebody, that, walk, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, so that if somebody walks in, um, because cannabis, you know, all drugs are, are metabolized differently. Everybody has different responses to medications. Um, some people have adverse effects to statins while other people, it works well for them. Um, but I think cannabis is even heightened more. And so my ultimate goal would be to figure out, you know, so you're trying to treat this disease and you have this profile, this is what you should be taking. Hmm. How long is it realistically going to take to get there? A long time. A long time. 50 years? No, years? no, I don't think that long because they're already doing, they're already doing this kind of thing um, with other medications so that you can do gene testing to find out if you're going to be a responder or a higher low metabolizer. So I don't think we're so far from it. Corinne, what do you want Joanna to find out in the next 20 years? I mean, I think that like, so that's, that's very much like the, the medical and clinical side of things. And I'm just really interested in to see where this is going to go in the athletic sphere, be it changes to WADA and USADA testing, changes to general stigma, um, arena the backpedal in order to move forward since there's a lot of stuff on the market now that we don't necessarily have validity for like that, like that to me is super fascinating. Do you have any final words for us, for the listeners out there? Don't be afraid if one thing doesn't work to try something else. Just because you've tried a product and it wasn't useful doesn't mean that there's something out there that's going to be better for you. And the other thing is don't put the burden of the world on the shoulders of cannabis because it isn't the be all end all. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a cannabis researcher. I think it has a lot of utility medically. Um, when I started using cannabis, I thought, well, gee, I'm going to be able to get off all these other medications I'm on. And I was very disappointed when I couldn't. I'm like, I still need some pain medicine and I still need muscle relaxers now and again. And, and it, it didn't solve the world's problems. It made uh, life a lot better for me. It improved my quality of life, but it, it wasn't the be all end all that um, it was purported to be by the anecdotal stories I heard. And I went to a talk and I heard uh, one of the very knowledgeable cannabis doctors address this very issue. And he's like, it's not a failing of cannabis. It's just that you can't expect this one thing to do everything. And so people shouldn't think that, okay, well, I'm going to start using cannabis and now I'm going to be this great athlete and I'm going to not have aches and pains and I'm going to be able to perform at this level that's unbelievable. None of those things are probably going to happen um, because, you know, it, you still have to... Uh, train hard. You have to be smart. You have to get good sleep. You have to eat well. It, it, using cannabis isn't going to be um, a band-aid for other mistakes. Listen to that, people. And this is why I wanted to talk to you about this, because I knew you would come to this with a personal anecdotal story, research and science to back it up, but also the pragmatism to realize that it's not a panacea for everything. And I, I just, I just, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that perspective, particularly in this day and age where everybody is searching for the magic solution and cannabis is certainly not it. 
and it can, but it can be a solution. And we're probably a little bit of ways from figuring out how to use it more precisely. Exactly. Well, thank, thank you for coming on, Corinne. Thanks, thanks, for, thanks for being our reasonable skeptic today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I think it's a super interesting area. And I think we're going to see, I mean, we're already seeing a lot of growth. And I think we're going to see a lot more growth um, in the coming years. So it's good to be in the know. Yeah, well, thank you. Joanna, before we sign off, where can people find you and find more about your research? Uh, you can find me at uh, joanna-ziger.com. And if you want to learn about my research, uh, canarresearchgroup.net. Thank you very much. You guys will see everybody out on the trails. All right. Thank you. All right, Ultra Runners, what'd you think? I tell you what, uh, that conversation with Joanna and Corinne was a whole lot more forthcoming and frank than I really thought it was going to be. Really appreciate uh, Joanna coming up on the podcast. Uh, her time and expertise is just absolutely invaluable. If you do have a second, go ahead and, and hit her up on social media, or you can go visit the Canner Research Group. You just Google it on the web. Pretty easy to find. They're doing a ton of great research in this area, which is pretty brand spanking new. There's not a lot of research uh, in this area, as we alluded to earlier. Thanks again to Corinne for playing the role of reasonable skeptic. I always appreciate her looking up the research and fact finding uh, for us, whether we're doing an article or a podcast. And she's actually helping uh, do a little bit of research and writing on the new book uh, that I'm working on. Uh, And last but not least, you guys, tis the season to start to get ready for training. And if you think that coaching is something that would help your training out for your goals this summer, go ahead and hit us up at trainright.com. You can use the promo code COOPCAST in all caps, and I will waive your registration fee. That's right. I'll waive your registration fee for any new athletes. Hit us up if Corinne or any one of our other fantastic coaches, which are going to be coming up on the podcast uh, in the next couple of weeks, are good fits for you. We would love to bring you on board, and I'd love to see you out on the trails and out on the races. Until, you, until then, you guys, have fun with the training, and we will see you out on the trails. Mm-hmm.